Do you know how much salt you eat on a daily basis? The average Australian consumes double the daily recommended intake of salt, too much of which can leave us feeling tired, bloated and puffy. On today's episode of The Nutrition Couch, we take a closer look at where extra salt could be slipping into your diet and how to keep it much lower but still taste good. Hi, I'm Susie Burrell. And I'm Leanne Ward. And each week we bring you The Nutrition Couch, the bi-weekly podcast that keeps you up to date on everything you need to know in the world of nutrition. As well as all things salt, Leanne and I are going to talk about a topic that will be of big interest to many of our listeners, diet and ovulation. And we share what the science shows about improving your cycle and improving your fertility. And our listener question, Leanne, has been spurred on by the number of clients of mine who seem to have taken a liking to halloumi. (laughs) And the question is about how much fat is too much? Now, Leanne... I suspect you are a halloumi lover. Tell me. Absolutely. I just find it funny that for some reason, some of my US clients either haven't really had it or it's not as readily available as what it is in Australia. Like in the Australia brunch scene, halloumi is on every menu. Like I've even said to David, I won't go to a cafe if it doesn't serve halloumi. (laughs) I'm absolutely, you know me, I'm a cheese girl at heart. I'm a halloumi (laughs) lover at heart. But my goodness, they give you big portions. And to be fair, some cafes charge like $7, $8 for a side of halloumi. So, you know, they've got to give you a decent amount. But it's a fair calorie bomb, isn't it? It's very high fat. Well, I like white cheese. So I love goat's cheese and feta. And actually, some of my friends are horrified that if I go to a cafe that doesn't serve it, I'll take it with me because I just <laughs> love eggs um, with goat's cheese in particular. But the issue, of course, with halloumi is it's such thick, big slices. And so I think when our listeners hear actually how much fat is in there, perhaps they too may swap to goat's cheese or feta just for a little bit more portion control. But we will come back to all things that are fabulous and cheesy in a minute. But to start, Leanne, I wanted to talk about something that does come up in our work, but it's not one of those buzz lines. Like we hear a lot about diets and fat loss and fasting and, you know, reverse dieting and all those kind of buzz terms that come up time and time again. But I don't think we've spoken about salt for quite some time. And salt is one of those things kind of like fruit and vegetables. We sort of sometimes assume people are aware of it. But the reason I wanted to talk about it was that at times it can really slip in and I'll I'll have instances with clients where they'll be doing their weekly weight check or or measurement check and they'll be really disappointed that even though they feel that they've been on track with their diet and eating really well, that suddenly the scales won't budge or it may even shoot up. And inevitably, every single time I'll say to them, did you eat something salty the night before? And it's not uncommon. Someone might have had dumplings or they might have even had sushi or they might have had Mexican And, you know, it can put a couple of kilos of fluid on. So I thought in terms of how we feel in our tummy each day, how puffy our skin looks, whether we're bloated, probably is worth having a little bit of a chat about salt and food, where it comes from and how you can kind of avoid what we would call the salt super bomb, particularly if you're sensitive, because it is one of those things that some people will be more sensitive to salt than others. Indeed, when it comes to the relationship between blood pressure and salt, some people are are more sensitive. So blanket rules to eat a lower salt diet for blood pressure, it doesn't really always always apply to people. Some people are more salt sensitive than others, but certainly those who do have high blood pressure, you would be particularly mindful about not having these particularly high salt foods we're going to talk about. So Leanne, we know that Australians consume close to 10 grams of salt per day. Now, salt is sodium chloride and it's specifically the sodium amount we want to keep relatively low. And we want that to be less than 2,000 milligrams per day. So when you're looking on food labels, you'll see that it's the sodium that is actually listed. And that is why there's a difference between how much salt is in a food and then the actual sodium content. So that 9.6 grams talking about total salt, 
And then the proportion of that is the sodium. And we ideally want to be keeping that below about 2,000 per day. And, and as we go through, you'll see there are some foods that give you 2,000 in, in a single serve. And certainly if you've been to a Chinese restaurant or, or any kind of Asian food, really, you'll be going well over that, I would say, just because of the concentration of sources. And that's 2,000 milligrams. What did I say? 2,000 grams. But you just kept saying 2,000. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so you said 10 grams and then 2,000. 2,000 milligrams. <laughs> yes. Good pickup. So it's 9.6 grams of total salt, but that weans down to the amount of sodium, which is 2,000 milligrams or two grams of sodium itself in total. But basically the less the better. And some people may be, even be on a limitation of less than 1,500 per day. Now, most foods will contain some sodium. So for example, if you look at bread, breakfast cereal, you'll have about 300 milligrams per serve. And that's probably a reference that I'll use that's a reasonable amount. Once it's getting up to about 600 milligrams per serve, it's getting to the higher side. And then we have this group of foods which are sort of heavily seasoned. So things like packet soups, sauces, two-minute noodles, processed meat, or even things like wraps actually can have upwards of 1,000 milligrams per serve. And that's where we start to get a little bit bit edgy about it in terms of where it's coming from. So according to some data in terms of where people are getting their sodium from in the diet, there's certainly a handful of foods that stand out. So this is some old data in Australia and it's going back over 10 years, but it won't have changed of anything. It will only have got worse. So where the highest amounts per serve were coming in were potato chips, processed meat. So we're talking sausages, we're talking meat pies, we're talking prosciutto, ham, turkey, anything in a packet. Like the luncheon type deli meats. There's a lot of things like sausage rolls, chicken nuggets in terms of kids and them getting a taste for salt, cheese and pizza. And then very close were the sauces and condiments. So when you look at any kind of, of sauce seasoning, in particular the Asian sauces like your hoisin, your soy sauce, you know, a serve of, of uh, even low sodium soy will have 500 milligrams in a single serve, which can be as little as one teaspoon. So if you're thinking back to how many different sauces you might add to a stir fry, you might add some hoisin, you might add some sweet chili, you might add some soy, you can see straight away it just ends up being a complete overload. And without a doubt, any kind of fast food meal that includes, includes burgers and fries will have two, 3,000 milligrams per meal, which is potentially why you wake up in the night thirsty, you're feeling bloated the next day, because when the high proportion of sodium is, is around in the blood, it basically attracts water. So it's retaining a fluid and hence explains why you are getting the bloat. So it's just some very practical ways to sort of cut as much as possible. Straight away, I would only ever use one type of sauce if possible in any kind of mixed dish. So for example, if you're making a stir fry, I would try and edge away from adding several different sauces. So don't do fish and oyster and hoisin if you can, just try and stick to one. And if you can find a salt-reduced variety, and there are quite a few salt-reduced varieties of soy sauce, that is a very smart thing to swap to. And even something like a plain chili is actually really, really quite low. So there's definitely some low choices as well. I think with wraps, I've got a lot of wrap fans out there. And don't get me wrong, they can be a very practical solution to quick and easy meals on the go, particularly when you're choosing for, for um, whole grain varieties. But some of the wraps, Leanne, especially those large ones, large white ones can have up to 800 milligrams of sodium, which is just way too high for a bread-based product. So you're looking for three, 400 milligrams max. So certainly check that label out. And there's a lot of wraps that are very, very high. And then if you imagine adding ham or smoked salmon to it, it can really blow out. So be mindful of that. Definitely any kind of processed meat, ham, turkey, if you can get actually the breast meat, whether it's turkey breast, chicken breast that you've cooked yourself, 
that's going to be a much better swap. Two-minute noodles as a snack food, particularly for young teenagers, that little sachet of seasoning has got more than your entire recommended daily intake of sodium. So if you can use the noodles as a base and not add the sachet, that's a really smart swap, as is for a plain noodle like a hoikin, which doesn't have any actual sodium with it. And in general, Leanne, the tin soups, so those kind of pots and tins are among the highest. They have sort of upwards of 800 milligrams per serve, whereas a a number of the pouches are much lower, um, particularly when they've got that tetra kind of seal on them and they can be much lower, sort of less than 600 milligrams per serve for a soup is pretty good because let's be honest, a soup that um, doesn't have any sodium tends to be pretty harsh on the palate. And then the other thing, and I'll come to you in a second, Leanne, with your best salt swaps without just completely hogging the, the mic today. The other thing I wanted everyone just to keep in mind is that because um, the way sodium works in the body is potassium is a buffer. So if you do have that liking for sodium and salt, you don't have any blood pressure issues, you do like to season your food, you do like it with a bit of flavor, sure, choose salt-reduced varieties of, say, passata, tomato um, paste, um, soy sauce where you can, steer clear of your processed meats like your bacon, your prosciutto, which are are huge amounts um, in those. But the more fresh fruits and vegetables you can consume, those seven to 10 serves as recommended on a Mediterranean diet, that will help to buffer that sodium and help to reduce fluid retention. So that's another good rationale for increasing your greens, green type juices, munching on some celery, cucumber, that will to a certain extent help to buffer the effects of higher sodium meals so you don't just have all the fluid keeping on board and nothing to wash it out. Yeah, definitely. And I think that you make a good point because I'm not really with my clients, you know, most of them are younger, active. They don't really have issues with blood pressure or cholesterol or heart sort of diseases or that sort of thing. So I'm not really overly concerned with my client's salt recommendations. But having said that, you're on our clients, Susie, they're eating two, three, four times the amount of vegetables and what the standard Australian is eating. So I think if you have an overall good quality diet, you've got tons of fresh fruit and veggies. Like you said, with that added addition of the potassium in there, it is helping to buffer some of that salt as well. And if you're doing a lot of activity, you're sweating some of that. So some added salt in the diet is perfectly okay, but I think a lot of us are just getting it from the wrong sources or it's really that processed source. Like it's the biscuits and the crackers and the chips and the tons of bread and wraps and that sort of thing. Or like you mentioned, the two minute noodles or the um, what are those really one people love the magoring type noodles those type of ones um so a lot of that processed food in the little bowls and the we add the water to yeah and rum and that sort yep. of thing and um i have a funny story actually we had thai was it last night or the, the night before i think and got a couple of different stir fries to share a curry and a noodle dish and that night i remember taking a glass of water with me to bed which i don't normally do because i'm pregnant and i hate waking up to pee during the night i hate that and i actually had to get up twice during the night to pee because i had to drink so much water because i felt so parched before i went to bed and then the next morning we went out somewhere and i put my wedding rings on and i actually couldn't get my wedding band on either. So I was like, oh, and out of curiosity, I jumped on the scale and I was up 800 grams, which, you know, it's not because I just had a huge meal or anything like that. It's really just to do with the higher carbon, high salt intake. So if you are someone who's regularly checking their weight on the scale, like Susie mentioned at the start, just be aware that eating out can often be higher carb and higher salt, which can make your body basically retain a little bit more water, which causes the scale to go up. It's not necessarily fat gain. It's just your body's retaining a little bit more. So I think it all comes back to sort of a healthy, balanced lifestyle, but as much as we can to reduce a lot of the overly processed or ultra processed and a lot of the packet foods as well, the better. And using things like herbs and spices to flavor your meals versus adding in too many bottled sauces and condiments, like Susie said, even doing smart things like using 
using a jar of tomato passata instead of using a jar of, say, spaghetti bolognese sauce itself, because you're still getting that nice flavor, but it's significantly less salt to that as well. And being very careful with babies under one. I remember when Mia was just learning to eat, she must have been maybe, I don't know, six, seven, eight months. I gave her some of those like baby rice crackers and David tried some. And he was like, these taste like crap. And I was like, because they're not salted. They're not flavored. Babies shouldn't have salt. Little toddlers and little kids shouldn't really either, but they can get away with a tiny bit more. But babies, it should be basically like nothing. Their little kidneys just can't handle it. So being very aware when you're first teaching your kids to eat or, you know, starting solids, make sure that the salt is basically non-existent. Reading the labels is really, really important if you are giving kids foods from packets as well. True. And, and as a reference, if you are looking at those tiny labels, put your glasses on at the supermarket, but anything over 800, even 600 milligrams per serve is is not insignificant. You've only got 2,000 a day to play with. So, you know, anything sort of, I like about 300 per serve is my reference point. And particularly with soups, if you can get it sort of six, 800, but once it's over a thousand, that's a food you really want to be mindful that that's extremely high in salt and probably best avoided for those who do have uh, considerable issues with blood pressure. Alrighty. And then we are going to our next segment, Susie, which we thought was very interesting. And I will handle it over to you in a second, because I must say you're far more across this than I am at the moment, but you found a really interesting study online. So it was published in the Journal of Nutrients. It's a new one. So April, 2022, and it's called the influence of diet on ovulation disorders in women. It's a narrative review and it basically goes through some of the I guess, influences that nutrition and lifestyle factors may have on ovulation. So the article sort of starts off by saying that female infertility is actually quite common, but it's basically due to, in large part, ovulation disorders. And the most common one is PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome. And that's actually one of the most common endocrine disorders that affect women of reproductive ages. The article also talks about other sort of ovulation-related infertility factors, including things like stress, smoking cigarettes, age, substance abuse, and also physical activity activity as well, but also diet. And interestingly enough, the article actually called out the Mediterranean diet for being a beneficial addition to ovulation as well. And other things in the article that they found played a really positive influence on ovulation were carbohydrates, in particular having a low GI. So a basically the rate at which the energy is absorbed and released by the body is lower compared to sort of higher GI products. Focusing on plant protein was really helpful. And we're not talking about, Susie, the type of plant protein that's like the vegan, um, you know, fake sausage meat. We're talking about, you know, our beans, our legumes, our tofu, those wonderful more whole food sources of plant protein getting your fat mix right. So going towards the unsaturated, so the money and the polyunsaturated fatty acids, also focusing on things like folic acid, vitamin D, iron, and antioxidants as well. So just having a well-rounded, good quality diet, I think was really important, but you had some more specific things and even a little case study that you wanted to share with our listeners today, didn't you? I know that a lot of our listeners are going through a fertility journey and it can be really challenging. And of course, one of the first things many of us are keen to do is have a look at our diet, particularly if you've got a history of PCOS and insulin resistance. But even if not, you know, if you've had any history of low body weight, disordered eating, perhaps you're following a gluten-free diet or actually true celiac, because that can have really pronounced effects, one for the pituitary gland to have been um, vulnerable to severe calorie restriction at times, but then secondary, um, perhaps eliminating food groups for a range of different reasons, that does have a profound effect on our nutrient intake. So I thought the two key areas that that uh, stand out to me when it comes to eating for fertility, and indeed, Leanne, 
there are some expert dietitians who specialize in this field. Um, the dietologist is an, an expert in this field. She's got a podcast, so I it would encourage you to also listen to that. And I know you've had several experts on this area on the Leanne Ward Nutrition podcast as well. Mm-hmm. Have you done ovulation before or just fertility? Just on fertility in general. Yeah, but it's a great chat. So have a listen to that. Um, you can get that from iTunes as well. But in terms of a couple of things just to be considering if this is your journey and, and you're struggling with a cycle or regaining your cycle, even if you've already conceived and, and struggling again, the first thing that comes to mind is what I would call, and we've discussed it before, chronic calorie deprivation, but it may even be more specific to that. So for a number of reasons, people may be restricting their carbohydrate intake or secondary to say following a diet for celiac disease or a gluten-free diet, even not being aware that their intake of whole grains and carbohydrates is considerably lower than it normally would be. So if you're someone who in the morning has an omelet for breakfast or a protein shake or even some yogurt and maybe just a small amount of a gluten-free cereal. And then you have a, a traditional salad for lunch or even sushi. And then you come for dinner and have protein and vegetables because that is a gluten-free diet. If you count the number of whole grain serves or carbohydrate serves, it's quite low. And what we know about the pituitary gland or even the ability to conceive or, or ovulation is highly affected by calorie availability and also fat balance, which we'll come to in a minute. So it really is worth checking to make sure that you're consuming enough carbohydrate and enough whole grain content to support um, and nourish the glands, the hormones, and the cycles. Because if the body is perceiving calorie deprivation, even though your nutrition is ticked, that is a factor that we do need to take into account. So I think indirectly for people avoiding gluten, that can be a, a pertinent issue. And just making sure that you are consuming an amount of carbohydrate. So If I graphed that diet, Leanne, in terms of how much carbohydrate, that could be as low as 20 to 30%, which is about half what's recommended for, um, I guess, healthy, active people. And even for my insulin resistance or PCOS, I'd want it to be at least 40 kind of percent. So you can see that it can get right down to 20, 30%. And if that quality of carbohydrates not there, you're not getting whole grains from brown rice or, you know, various oats, you know, good quality carbohydrates. Again, you're not ticking the box on those key nutrients that can be linked. So it's certainly worth paying attention to your carbohydrate intake overall. And if your preference is not to have grain-based carbohydrate, there's other options. As you mentioned, you can go for legumes, you can use your edamame beans, you can use your fruit, your whole, your vegetables, your potato in a jacket, sweet potato, corn. There are many sources of carbohydrate that don't have to be rice and pasta, but nutritionally, you do need to be ticking the box on those for energy availability and also a number of nutrients to make sure that you're not giving the body a perceived starvation, which can indirectly affect um, pituitary gland and, and ovulatory cycles. So that's the first thing. The second thing to look at is your fat. Now, we're going to talk about fat in a minute at a broader level. But if you consider for optimal, what we know from the science in terms of eating for fertility, it's about having a very high proportion, even beyond 30, even up to 40% of a good quality fat diet. So when we talk about good fats, we're talking about avocado, we're talking about oily fish like our salmon, we're talking about nuts, we're talking about seeds. And in my experience of working with clients and even myself, Leanne, unless you're proactively eating oily fish and having a serve of nuts and seeds per day, you won't be reaching those targets at all. But what we do is we get plenty of fat from the wrong sources. So we all love our cheese. We all love our dairy. We love our meat. We love our chocolate. We love our chips. So they get all that sort of proportion of of poor quality fat, but we're failing to get the good quality fat without those key foods. So for those listening who perhaps are wanting to restore ovulation, you want to be getting three to four serves of good fat every single day. 
So that's one or two tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil. That's avocado, quarter of an avocado, a serve of nuts and seeds, about a tablespoon worth at a minimum. So I'm talking, you know, almonds, walnuts, um, pepitas, even trail mix. We're going to review trail mix in one of our episodes or have done recently. So it's about getting that mix of nuts and seeds and oily fish. And the reason we bang on about salmon, and admittedly I'm an ambassador for Tassau, but salmon is one of the richest natural sources of omega-3 fat. Sardines is another great one. You don't get a lot from tin tuna. Unfortunately, most tuna is low fat. So that salmon, if you like it, getting that in at least every second day or sardines, if you like it, absolutely crucial because natural anti-inflammatories, very closely linked to hormone production in the body. It's making sure you're not in a calorie deficit and it will not contribute excessively to weight gain. It's only when we eat the bad fats, the saturated fats, which are more likely to be stored. The good fats have a much more functional role in the body and very, very important when it comes to contributing to, to fertility and, and ovulatory cycles. Mm, absolutely. And diet matters. And just before we jumped on the potty, we were talking about um, a couple of clients of ours and even friends of ours who have had children and now start sort of struggling to have a second child because of um, basically potentially the diet's not optimal, potentially it's something else as well. But a lot of people are just struggling to actually get their period back post baby and whether or not they're actually breastfeeding. I've got a friend now and she's going on um, a year and a half. She it, you know, just before 12 months and it's still been six months and that period hasn't come back yet. So I think nutrition quality, always look at the diet and the lifestyle first, particularly make sure you're not over-exercising, making sure you're doing things to manage your stress on a daily basis as well. And as you mentioned, Susie, that diet is so critical. So I'll just summarize and bring us up to speed with what this sort of article, because it was a really great one for ovulation and fertility. Again, what we think positively influences ovulation. So it's good quality whole grain carbohydrates, with a focus on low GI carbohydrates, focusing on plant protein, the right types of fat, and our key nutrients such as folic acid, vitamin D, iron, and also antioxidants. And if you're looking towards a structure or a style of diet that's very beneficial, definitely look up the Mediterranean diet. And as Susie mentioned, I've had a couple of episodes talking about the Mediterranean diet and also what good quality fats are as well on the Leanne Ward Nutrition Podcast. Now, on the flip side of that, Things that appear to negatively influence ovulation and fertility include poor types of carbohydrates, in particular those with a high glycemic index, large amounts of animal proteins, the wrong types of fats, so our saturated and our trans fats, and more of that Western-style processed nutrition model. So really moving away from what most of us are doing, more towards a whole food, plant-focused sort of diet as well, are really the key things this article rounds up. So it sounds like basic healthy eating, but what we know, Susie, is that 60 to 70% of adults aren't getting this right. No, well, most people don't get the whole grains. I think it's like three out of 10 Australians get their recommended daily intake of whole grains. I would say anecdotally, very few people get their omega-3 recommended daily intake unless they're people who are eating salmon really regularly. And that can even be tinned salmon. It's a really rich source as well and and quite affordable. And certainly nuts and seeds. I find that people are either nuts and seeds eaters and they might have a daily nut bar or they might use a granola that's got a really beautiful mix of, of good fats. But a lot of people don't. Often we're grabbing, you know, toast and things on the go, which is always sourdough, so no whole grain, picking up lunches. And they're always, if even if it's salad, so healthy, it's often got high saturated fat dressings. They're not using extra virgin olive oil and they're certainly not getting any whole grain carbohydrate. And then dinner, we're trying to be good, you know, and we're having protein and veggies. But again, we're not necessarily getting that range of nutrients and in particular the good fats or the good quality carbohydrates. So they're really things to concentrate on, particularly if you have had a history of disordered eating or actively restrict carbohydrates, whether it's for weight control or whether it's because you're avoiding gluten. 
just keep a little eye on that because, yeah, even though you might sort of think on the surface you're eating pretty well, there's often things that we can do and add in which can be hugely beneficial, particularly when it comes to fertility. And I think just talking about your friend and, and think people that I know, I think some of the issue with, with mums second time around is that they're often still breastfeeding, depleted from a first pregnancy, exhausted, and often don't have time to prepare balanced meals for themselves. They're more worried about what their toddler's having. So you can see how their, their own nutrition falls by the wayside when they're basically in survival mode for that first five years of life with small children. So it's certainly not a judgment from Leanne and I. It's just a, a permission to really take a look at your own nutrition if, if that's something that you're working on and, and want to be keeping as healthy and fit and get your period back and or conceive again. And we'll definitely just give a shout out to our colleagues as well. Working with a accredited practicing dietitian, particularly somebody who focuses in this fertility and ovulation area is so key. So, you know, there's some big events coming up, Susie. There's Easter, there's Mother's Day. Hopefully someone will have a birthday during the year, then there's Christmas. Ask for that as part of a gift. Often people say, well, what would you like for Mother's Day? Or what would you, David always asks me. And rather than those things, we think, oh, you know, they can buy us a perfume, they can buy us a, a gift voucher or something. Take it into your control and really make 2023 the year that you focus on your health and ask for a consult with a dietitian or ask, you know, for your loved ones to put some money together so you can go and access some great quality healthcare because that's going to benefit you and your family better because you can't pour for an empty cup. And I find that most mums, like you said, Susie, it's not a judgment for us. We know we're all knee deep and I'm going through it at the moment. It's, it's exhausting, but you can't pour for an empty cup. So if you don't take care of yourself, you can't really long-term take care of your family as well. So make 2023 about you and the year that we actually go and see a professional rather than resort to Google um, for our <laughs> nutrition advice. Perfect. All right. Well, for our final segment of the day, it was triggered by Halloumi, Leanne, because Halloumi is very popular on uh, the Saturday and Sunday food diaries that come through. And I just had a little bit of a chuckle to myself because it's one of those foods that we all love to eat, but dietitians hate it because it's so high in fat. Like a, a serve of halloumi, one, it can be massive. So you think about a block of sort of halloumi cheese, which is about 100 grams. So you would have to make that into about six serves so that that would come in at sort of less than 20 grams because halloumi is about 25%. I think a standard halloumi is even 180. Like you're being very generous at 100 grams. Like a standard block of halloumi I'm sure is 160, 180 grams. You reckon it's 180? Yeah. So most serves we're getting in a cafe are 30 to 50 grams. Now that is at least 10 to 15 grams of fat in one hit and it's all saturated. There's no good fat in halloumi. So I just thought it lent itself to a bit of a discussion about the foods that are packed full of fat. Now, Leanne and I are certainly not anti-fat. If anything, fat can be very um, satiating. Certainly if I'm seeing food that doesn't have any good quality dressing or some seeds or nuts added, I'm concerned because I do want that full factor of good fat. But as I mentioned, what we choose to have, particularly on the weekends, tends to be the bad fats. And halloumi was one that comes all the time. And you made a good point that when people are ordering halloumi at the cafe, it's often part of, what did you describe? Avo toast with? Like the avo toast with the, you know, the good drizzle of extra virgin olive oil and all the dukkha and the nuts on top. And then people often get a side of bacon and halloumi <laughs> with that. Or I had a client the other day and she said, oh, the corn fritters look so good on the menu. Can I have that with bacon or halloumi for protein? And I was like, how many snacks do you have for the week? Mm, <laughs> like, yeah, It's quite an energy bomb when you really think about it. Like these meals by themselves are big enough. And then we're adding big serves of bacon and halloumi to the side of them as well. So cheese is not a protein. Everyone thinks cheese is a protein. Now it does contain protein, but proportionally it's got more fat. So when I'm modeling diets, I don't count cheese as a protein. I count it as a fat. And that's more the case with halloumi, which is massive. So you, I would argue you're much better to go for the feta or the goat's cheese that you can spread in a much smaller quantity. 
than those big slabs of halloumi because they are massive when you order it as a side. And rightly so, they're costing like five, six dollars, but it's just a calorie fat overload. So just be aware of that. I think the other one is like you described the bacon. I see a lot of bacon going in on the weekend. Now, it's a processed meat. It's not, we're ideally not consuming too much processed meat. I, I don't dislike it as much as I dislike halloumi. But again, as you described, Leanne, if you're having avo plus bacon plus halloumi, like that's 40 grams of fat. So in terms of how much do we need, which was the original question, the average small female will need roughly 60 to 80 grams per day. But everyone's different. The higher the energy requirements, the more that you'll be able to burn and process. But the key thing for all of us is that less than 30% of that should be saturated fat. And that comes in at 20, 30 grams max of saturated fat. Now, if you consume some red meat, if you consume some dairy, that's basically your saturated fat. And then if we add chocolate and cheese, you're going way over. So certainly any place that we can cut it out with things like the extra halloumis and things is a smart choice, particularly if your goal is fat loss. But some other little ones that do creep in, the bacon's one of them, certainly sausages. Now, I love sausages like the rest of people. And I used to consult to peppercorn, which is one of the leanest sausages on the market. And peppercorn sausages have less than 10% fat overall. Less, I think they're about three grams saturated. And there's a growing range I've noticed, particularly of the chicken sausages in both Coles and Woolies that come in at less than 10% fat. But most sausages people buy, like the good old pork, um, plain beef ones, chipoladas that you buy for kids' barbecues are about 20, 30% fat. So if you're having a meal of sausages once a week, which aren't the extra lean ones, you will absolutely be getting a truckload and that'll be coming in at probably 10 grams per sausage. And the other product, Leanne, oh my God, I hate chicken thighs and chicken drumsticks. I thought you were going to say chicken nuggets. Because they're so, they're like 20 to 30% fat and people think, oh, it's chicken. It's like massive amounts of extra fat slipping in. So you're much better to buy the tenderloins. You're much better to do the breast. You know, it's not, you can see it's not chicken meat. You can see how much fat and things, it's not the same thing. So that's another easy way to strip out a lot of extra fat that can slip into clients' diets each week just to really, it really bumps you up over that 60, 80 grams and that will be where you won't be getting fat loss because your overall fat intake will be too high. Mm. Another big one for the weekend, um, things like big breakfasts, you know, you've got the mini sausages, you've got the bacon, you've got the hash browns. Often, you know, people will then have a bit of like halloumi or avocado with that as well. The weekend barbecues are a big one. Like you mentioned, the sausages, there's steaks, there's lamb cutlets if you're at somewhere fancy. Then we've got the sides of like the potato bake, the potato salad, the pasta salad, often drowned in like mayonnaise. We've got garlic bread on the side. Often before we even get to the barbecue, there's the cheese platters with the chips and the cheese and, you know, the Jats crackers. Oh, dear. Um, so it's it slips in a lot, particularly on the weekend. So it's really important to know that if you are eating out a little bit more, you've got to actively try for those leaner choices, or like we said, work towards a better fat balance. So it's not all coming from the saturated and the trans fats as well. But I think the big ones, particularly, you know, being budget friendly are some of the meats that a lot of us are eating, like you mentioned, the bacon, the salami, the sausages, the deli style meats, the more kind of affordable options, but they're definitely not the leaner or the healthier options. So it's really trying to get that balance right throughout the week. But you mentioned for a small female, I think you said about 60 to 80 grams. Typically as a rule of thumb, I'll say to my clients, at a minimum, you want one gram of fat per kilogram as a general rule at an absolute minimum. So for a female that weighs 70 kilos, you'd want a minimum of 70 grams of fat. If you weigh 100 kilos, you'd want a minimum of 100 grams of fat in per day. And that's at a minimum because what you'll find is that if you don't, you're not getting enough fat in through your diet, it starts to affect hormones. It starts to affect cellular processes, hair, skin, nails, that sort of thing. So the body really does need a minimum amount of fat and we definitely want that mix right. And most Australians aren't getting that mix right they're getting too much of the bad stuff and not enough of the good stuff or what i'm finding Susie, is 
my clients will go out and they'll smash the cheese platters, they'll smash the alcohol, they'll happily go and have a big breakfast, but they're fearing adding fat in through the week. Like they fear using good quality extra virgin olive oil. They're feeling having a handful of nuts for a snack. They'll happily have their carbs, like their popcorn, their fruit, their crackers, but they're just so fearful of things like nuts or using, you know, some good quality avocado or something on a salad because they just want to keep it low carb and low calorie, but they'll go out on the weekend and they're getting these huge, you know, saturated fat bombs like we've talked about from all the meals that they'll choosing. They're going to getting pizza and pastas and cocktails and they're happy to do that, yet they fear the good quality stuff. So it's absolutely getting that mix right, or it does long-term promote more of that inflammatory type pathway, which can lead to things like chronic and autoimmune diseases long-term as well. So definitely it's something we want to focus on. So take a step back and look at the overall quality of your diet, where these fats are coming in, and actively try to include more good fats to buffer off some of those more saturated and trans fats we seem to pick up more so on the weekend. Yeah, I've thought of two more. So mayonnaise. Well, that QB mayonnaise, everyone loves. That comes in all the time. Like (laughs) a tablespoon of mayonnaise, I want to say it's got like, what, 8 to 12 grams of fat per serve. Like it's massive. So if you love mayo and I have clients who negotiate, no problem, but you've got to cut the portion way down and blend it with something else so you get the flavor without the full load because it's so thick. It's hard to get it thin anyway. So that's one. The other one that you just mentioned too, dips. Oh my God, dips are just generally fat in a container. (laughs) Like unless you're having like salsa or tzatziki or like there's an Egyptian beetroot one from Chris's, which is really low, most of them are 20, 30% fat and they've just got a vegetable oil or cheesy like cream cheese base. So there's nothing healthy generally about dips. It's generally fat in a container. And even hummus, you got to check your brand. So some have got a higher proportion of chickpeas. I think off the top of my head, the Alina's is quite good, the Pilpel. But they're really, those ones are still high in fat overall. But all the others, like the cream cheese-based dip, the Philly kind of um, French onion, spinach, if you look, the first ingredient is usually cream, cream cheese, cheese or oil. Yeah. So it's generally just fat and you're just dipping away in fat. So there's just re- areas that perhaps are slipping in without realizing that they're just almost kind of pure fat going in. And it's really important to be mindful of that and try and regulate portions and or look for, for lighter options if you can. And I don't want to ruin your Sunday breakfast too much, but I'm telling you, goat's cheese is all right, Leanne. It's like less than 20% fat. You spread it much thinner. You'll get all the flavor. I have to say, ditch the halloumi. Well, I love both, so I'm an advocate for both, but we really just want to drill home. The take-home message here is not that fat is bad. We are absolutely advocating for fat, but we are advocating for the right types of fat. And sadly, most Australians are just getting that mix wrong. So we're really advocating for fat. We're basically, we're pro-fat. We like it. We just don't want too much of it, and we definitely don't want it coming from too many of the wrong sources. Balance is absolutely key. All right. So that brings us to the end of the Nutrition Couch for another Sunday. If you haven't done so, don't forget to subscribe and tell all your friends about us so we can continue to grow. Um, we're just about to launch and we've been saying it for a few weeks because some of us are not doing our work, Leanne, <laughs> but we are going to commit to doing it today and have our takeaway guide out to you in the next couple of weeks. But if you're also interested in supermarket products, you can find our supermarket guide for sale on our website, thenutritioncouch.com, and we will see you on Wednesday for our regular product review. <laughs>